Hello and welcome to Tell Me About It, brought to you by NAM AIDS Map, Radio Bill and Public Health England. It's a podcast where people with HIV and an interest in HIV share our experiences. It's an opportunity for us to talk to people who may know a little less about HIV, celebrate progress and learn from each other. Our lives are varied and diverse. There is no one way to be HIV positive. Every episode, we'll hear from two people with different perspectives. They'll share what they know and how their lives have been shaped by HIV. Today, we'll be hearing from Dr. Halima Begum and NAM AIDS MAP's very own Susan Cole. Dr. Halima Begum is the director of the Ronnie Mead Trust, the UK's leading race equality think tank. Halima has an extensive experience in international development, which she gained during a 20-year career with the UK government. She has served as a director of the British Council in Asia and currently chairs the UK Women's Environmental Network and serves as a trustee on Tony B Hall. Her dedication to equality has led to her living and working across the world, including in Southern and Southeast Asia. Susan Cole is an award-winning HIV activist, broadcaster, writer, and public speaker, advocating for people living with HIV for almost 20 years. She's particularly passionate about issues affecting women and people from black communities. She was awarded Women of the Year at the last NAS NOSCA ceremony and was recently named one of the top 10 black HIV influencers in the UK. She leads the community engagement and broadcasting activities for NAM AIDS Map. Halima, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm absolutely thrilled. Hi, Susan. Wow. I mean, the pleasure is all mine, really, isn't it? And I was just, just listening to the intro to NAM AIDS Map as well and to you. So I, I just feel the pleasure is all mine. And um just really looking forward to, to a conversation today and kind of opening hearts and minds around the issues that we work and campaign on around HIV. So thank you for having me. Oh, it, it's absolutely brilliant. And listening um, to your introduction, I'm feeling a little bit starstruck. It's like having the Beyonce of health inequalities on the show. So yeah, it's, I'm very, very excited. So thank you. <laughs> Um, Halima, when did you first find out about HIV? I mean, for me, it was very much the um, tombstone campaigns of the late 80s. Yeah, so we're going back a bit, aren't we, Susan? So um, I think for me as well, um, it was in the mid 80s and it was during school period and I mean, I have very vivid memories, actually, of finding out because I grew up in East London in Tower Hamlets and we had a local arts theatre called the Half Moon Young People's Theatre and they would do a lot of work around social issues in our schools. And I actually remember um, one of the performances that the theatre brought to us was around um, the experience or finding out about HIV uh, at a time when very little was known. And I remember being exposed to HIV through forum theatre or something like that. It was the most powerful way to be introduced to something that was quite new and uncertain. So I do remember feeling, watching the show and just not understanding things very well, but knowing that, oh, this is 
this is very serious and how come we don't know enough about it and and I was probably 14 at the time oh right yeah Yeah. so probably similar sort of time to me I mean I I remember seeing the 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 campaigns with tombstones and icebergs and very much thinking at the time that you know that HIV was a, a complete death sentence but also sort of thinking that it was something that really wouldn't actually touch me it was something perhaps that only really happened to 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 gay men um I believed um at the time so um yeah so it was a a complete shock for me when uh, I was actually diagnosed with HIV uh just over 20 years ago through a, a routine immigration test in the USA and it just didn't cross my mind for a moment that it could possibly come back as 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 positive. And the way that I was told was um, that the doctor said to me, well, the good news is you don't have syphilis. I thought, yay, well, that's good. But the bad news is you're HIV positive. And I was completely dumbstruck. And at the time, I believed that, you know, I had no idea about how long I would actually live. And I I asked the doctor and um, he said to me, oh, about seven years or so, which you can imagine how devastating that was because my children were only six and four at the time. So that was absolutely awful. But I sort of tried to make it my mission to find out as much as I could about HIV and even though I was living in rural Louisiana at the time I actually got information from NAM AIDS map where I'm working now and found out that actually you know the, the doctor wasn't right that you know in reality you know I could expect to live a, a long life and it would be possible to have more children. Wow um, yeah I mean I, I, I hear you it must have been all the more difficult because of the way in which perhaps the support systems were not there, Susan. This is bad enough already to feel as though something um, that that important and difficult was was about to be happening or is happening. But then not to have the support in place to actually cope with things like that in a in a way that feels like I can live with it. It doesn't mean it's a death sentence because I still remember it was just. And, I, you know, you're probably going to hear misconceptions from me, even, but I remember um, feeling as though, oh, and there's no way out. And when, in fact, that wasn't true. And actually, there's been progress. There's been understanding of how we live with HIV. And But I can imagine back in the mid-80s, it would have been really, really tough. So thank God we had a couple of good organisations that might have been on the kind of uh, front line to support support those of us impacted. Um, yeah, 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 it must be really difficult. <laughs> yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think what was really pivotal in terms of HIV was the fact that, you know, we've had um, effective treatment from the mid to late 1990s, mm-hmm. which has made a huge difference because before that, it very much was the case that people, you know, once diagnosed, they could p- perhaps you know, live 
another 10 years or so. But with effective treatment, things have changed dramatically and even even more so today with uh, the reality is that people who are on effective treatment can expect to live as long as everyone else which is really incredible and, and also the fact that you know when people are on treatment and it's working properly it's impossible to pass the virus on to their sexual partners which i think lots of people don't really know about that we, we call it U equals U in terms of undetectable equals untransmittable. Is that something that you've heard about before, Halima? Not in terms of the technical way that you describe it, but certainly in terms of people's everyday understanding of how they feel that they might um, um, in the past transmitted or been affected with HIV. There's something about the prejudice around um, an illness that comes from um, sexually transmitted diseases, I think, which I think people are quite worried about and scared about. And then the, the prejudice starts to show. But it's not so much just about stigma. It's not about the stigma that people display towards um, those of us who are living with HIV. It's more probably a massive insecurity relating to our attitudes towards sexuality in general or just sex you know so in some communities like in south asian communities we don't talk about sex it doesn't matter what age you are you just okay. don't talk about it so the very idea that this might have been perceived at the beginning uh, around sexual transmission i think might have um, caused to some of those problems with stigma and attitudes towards hiv um so i think it's really important to actually allay um, people's fears and reassure them, bring them out of their own misconceptions and prejudices. So I think that's what that approach you've described is doing. But I, I do remember, um, you know, like if you think about cancer, you get a different reaction. You still, I think, get a death sentence because it's so mm. big. But there's there's an understanding that you can cope with it, you can live with it, you can treat it. And there isn't that um, negativity that we felt earlier on with HIV and AIDS, I think, um, yeah. which has a knock-on impact on stress and how we feel we're, we're being valued and, and the kind of dignity with which we live our lives afterwards. Absolutely. I, I agree with you completely. I, I had breast cancer um, eight or nine years ago, and you know, the response from other people was completely different. You know, I was able to be very open about it, and I got so much support. But when I got my HIV diagnosis, I was really hesitant in terms of who I felt that I could talk to uh, about it. And, you know, unfortunately, I've been quite lucky in that the people that I've told have been supportive. But for women living with HIV in, in particular, it can be really difficult. And, and women with HIV are more likely to experience gender based violence. And very often that can happen when a woman tells a sexual partner she has HIV. And I mean, it could well be the case that, you know, if a woman is diagnosed first, even though she may not have, you know, it may not have been the case that you know, she potentially gave it to her partner. Often, you know, women are blamed in terms of bringing HIV 
um, into a household. And, and what's really awful and toxic as well is that very often women with HIV um, are made to feel that we're somehow fortunate that um, our partner is staying with us. And sometimes women stay in abusive relationships. And often I hear women talk about the fact that their partner says to them, well, you know, no one else is going to want you because you have HIV. So, you know, you're lucky to have me and you should stay with me, which is just so awful. And I, I very much think that sort of stigma and misconception really is 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 driving that and um you know, it, it's interesting what you were saying in terms of you know, south asian communities not really discussing sex I, I think that very often that that's the case um in people that that come from asian and african and caribbean communities is that you know we're we're often a bit uncomfortable um about talking about those issues and i, I think that that can you know, make things worse when you know, in, in reality um, the, the majority of women living with HIV in the UK do come um, from black communities but there just really isn't enough of the discussion um, about that and, and enough um, awareness risen uh, about that issue. Yeah and um, I think it's good Susan that you've you're speaking about yourself as a woman living with HIV uh, and and in a positive way um, because because what I mean of, obviously living with um, whether cancer or HIV and other illnesses you know different people experience life differently and so as a woman as a working class woman maybe somebody who who's also juggling all sorts of other inequalities it has a very different impact on our lives. And I often, you know, hear about people's discussions and they're always put into boxes, like everybody has the same experience. Well, no, not really. What you've just described is being a woman also having to deal with that stigma and that illness and other people's attitudes around, well, you should be so lucky. I, I'll tell you an example. It's not quite the same as yours, but I have a disability and I had... Um, I have a partner and sometimes we, I used to live in Asia, in Indonesia, in Jakarta at one time. And I'd have like really well-meaning friends actually say to me, oh, you're really lucky you have that partner because you know what, you've got a disability and not that many partners would, like he's really good, isn't he? And it all became about how good and a savior he was. And I thought, oh God, they, I think they mean well. And because I was obviously in a more privileged position in a slightly, um, higher paid job in the organization. I didn't feel as though I was completely um, disempowered in that moment. I had to also remember some of my own privileges. But I thought, my God, did they just really say that? Like, <laughs> they, and it was so wrong on so many levels. But anyway, so I, I went back to my partner and said, do you know they said that? And he was really embarrassed, dead embarrassed. Of course, he knows that. He probably gets that most of the time. That was just the one time that I heard it. So, so there's that, and and I think you, you're right that we have to feel um, grateful and lucky, and isn't that so 19th century? Um, you know, our life is so varied, so rich, so embodied. We don't need to feel grateful all the time, and it's about our rights, really. Even as you know, people who are living with the inequalities that we do, we still have equal rights compared to others that are uh, enjoying good health and wealth and whatever privileges that they have. So I feel it, but maybe Susan. I guess speaking to you, I hadn't quite appreciated 
obviously women uh, are made to feel as though they need to be grateful and live in you know quite abusive relationships and so on but i think with hiv it does add on that additional um complexity in terms of um people's perceptions around how aids is transmitted for example and how there's a there's there's something about public behavior that's assumed there somehow you asked for it and that's where you got it and therefore uh we don't have the same compassion but also i think at the beginning i think the idea that is something that just happened to the gay community even with that statement there's so many things wrong with it as though they somehow are responsible and should be stigmatized as well it's nothing to do with the rest of us so we've othered the gay community immediately right so i remember that we did other them so i think there's all sorts of problems there and i suppose the first time i became fully aware of what it means to um live in communities that are impacted with hiv and aids to that level was um some work i did actually when i was with the british government's aid agency uh, department of international development and i remember about 10 years ago there was a massive push suppose in sub-saharan africa to understand that hiv wasn't something that was just happening to communities um who had different behaviors or groups that had different uh behaviors lots of people were affected with hiv and aids in families so there was a massive push with unicef for example to look at orphans and vulnerable families that were left behind because so many parents had died whether they were whatever their sexuality there were families in sub-saharan africa that were living with the consequences of aids so orphans for example and grandparents having to look after children so that's the first time i became aware of the kind of full impact on our communities and what it means living with that um and 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 actually when unicef did push that campaign i felt as though they were pushing hearts and minds with them as well because for the first time it's children who had no decision as to why they had suddenly were living in that context Do you know what I mean? So you saw something yeah, about yeah. solidarity and compassion change. Well, it shouldn't be like that just because they're children and orphans. You and I, Susan, if we were having to live with HIV, we should also have that support. Yeah, thank you so much for for raising that, Halima. I think that's a, such an important point. I mean, we're really fortunate that in the UK, um, that you know, the vast majority of people. Um, living with HIV have access to treatment and actually you know, 94% are diagnosed, 98% are on treatment and of those 97% are virally suppressed so we're really exceeding our targets but globally there are 38 million people living with HIV worldwide and so many people still don't have access to treatment and you know what's really shocking is that only 53% of children living with hiv are receiving lifelong treatment so there's still so much more that we need to do and i think that it's 690,000 people died from hiv related causes in 2019 so you know we really can't be complacent Yeah, you know, I think people often think that you know HIV is sorted and it's you know it, it's just I I often hear about it being described as just being like having diabetes now. And you know for some people, you know, perhaps that is the case, but as you pointed out, there's still so much more stigma 
um, around living with HIV. And you're, you're very much right in that that comes about from it being uh, a sexually transmitted infection. And often people, you know, uh, you often hear about children who are born with HIV as being like the innocent victims or people who acquired HIV through a, a blood transfusion being an innocent victim, whereas you know people who've acquired HIV sexually, which is the vast majority of people, there is a bit of blame um, mm. about that, which is horrible. But in, in terms of the inequalities that women face, I do feel it does impact on you know testing for HIV and and getting treatment, and that you know sometimes women are put off from going and having an HIV test. And I think that's very much the case, particularly around people from, from black communities. Like the vast majority of people who are diagnosed late with HIV in the UK and therefore face worse outcomes and potentially dying are people from black communities and, and brown communities because we're just not testing soon enough and it's so crucial that you know these messages um get get across to people and you know testing for hiv should just become you know just mm. just routine not a sort of stigmatizing or, or worrying thing to do or if you have an hiv test you know you're somehow you know you must have done something bad or you're somehow a, a little bit bit dirty and that there's still so much shame um, around that. But you know, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, Halima, was the, the, the health inequalities that, that people of colour living with HIV face. And I think that it's very much part of the wider health inequalities that we're seeing in our, in our communities. I, mean, that, that, I know that's an area that you've been doing quite a lot of work on. What sort of things are you finding at the moment? So we have done a lot of research on the health inequalities that uh, we'll, we'll, we'll use the phrase people of colour to be consistent, Susan, because I know we can kind of, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so in, in general, we've known about that for quite some time, but I suppose the onset of COVID is, is just really making us really ask the harder questions that I suppose researchers have always asked. And what, what we're finding is that, you know, it's, now, you know, TV presenters are asking the question and trying to understand it, whereas, you know, health researchers have talked about health inequalities for a long time. And so people of colour experiencing different rates of access, different treatments, they, they, they experience the health system in a very different way. And some of it is to do with our gender, a lot of it is to do with our race, and it's really important that I say this again, a lot of it is to do with our race. <laughs> The government doesn't want to acknowledge race as a risk factor. And now you'll see that in COVID. They're basically saying there's all sorts of reasons for why people of colour are at risk, but that's not because of their race, is what they're saying. It's because they are living in overcrowded housing. That actually is true as well. They're overexposed because of the ways in which our jobs expose us for starters. But what they won't acknowledge is that our race matters. And because of our race, we face racism. And that's the bit that they can't get their head around. And it's really important that the government acknowledges that because, you know, I take my father 
to the local hospital. Um, my father is about 85. You know, my father wears a traditional choppy. My father doesn't look like me. And because he doesn't look like me or sound like me, he doesn't get the same treatment. And I see the visible difference that he gets and I get if I'm standing next to him. Now, if that is my experience, what is my dad's experience like when he goes by himself to seek treatment? Um, so I do think health inequalities impact in the way in which uh, people of colour are likely to seek treatment, early treatment, which then has a knock-on effect on how they can cope and respond to drugs and so on. It also has a knock-on effect in the way in which our communities are impacted or the way in which we can respond to you know, a new vaccine that's out to deal with coronavirus, for example. But if in our communities we haven't had that confidence with the health system for the last 20 years, there's no trust there. Do you imagine that we would just take the vaccine at the drop of a hat, even though our communities of colour are disproportionately impacted and we have seen our relatives go into hospital? I have seen my brother go into hospital in the last month. We have been devastated with that experience. And even in our communities, there's a lack of confidence in what this vaccine means. But that doesn't mean there's a lack of confidence in public science, not at all. There's a huge confidence in science in our communities. We're not skeptical of the science, but it's that historic cumulative treatment that causes us to not trust government or the sources of authority that tell us that we must now take the vaccine or we must now seek early treatment. Because if you don't treat people with dignity when they're most vulnerable, so when my father shows up to the Royal London Hospital with cancer, he's at his most vulnerable, right? And if he doesn't feel respected, then he's unlikely to come and seek help. So I think health inequalities matter. They matter. And if we do not deal with that now, Susan, we cannot get on top of this pandemic and how the coronavirus pandemic that is and how it is that we, we get all of our communities protected safely in a timely way. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I completely agree with you. And I, I really feel that you know, COVID has shone a light on the existing health inequalities that we've been experiencing for real. And one of the things that just always just drives me crazy is that, you know, when we try to raise these issues, you know, sometimes we're just accused of having a chip on our shoulder or playing the race card. And it's like weaponized against mm. us when we talk about it but you know the reality is that we know that this is real and this is happening day in and day out and it, it's very much the case of people of color living with hiv who you know have experienced discrimination in in healthcare settings and consequently you know they're not feeling confident about speaking up when they have problems. Now, I've, I've been running workshops for people of color living with HIV uh, around COVID and around navigating the health system. And very often people are saying to me, well, you know, I'm having all of these problems with my medication, but you know, I, there's no point in me really saying anything because no one's gonna listen or, or no one's going to believe that this is really happening to me. And so often, these experiences happen to us when we are at our absolute most vulnerable. I, I remember when I was diagnosed with cancer, um, I was at one hospital and I remember the oncologist saying to me, so you know, how did you actually get HIV? Like that was in any way relevant? 
And he also said, you know, and what are you doing to prevent spreading HIV to other people? And, you know, this was a doctor about can talking about my breast cancer. And then he went on when I was having a, a blood test to write HIV positive, high risk on the piece of paper when I was going off to have a blood test. And, you know, I complained and I changed hospitals. But so often people aren't in a position where they feel able to do that and to speak up. And it and it and it's awful. And I understand completely why people have anxieties uh, about taking the COVID vaccine because you know there there is a history of us being experimented on and people are worried about that and and I don't I, I don't really like the phrase vaccine hesitancy because that's putting the the blame a little bit on us when reality it's about the messaging and about you know how people are getting the messages across and you know the importance of positive role models um that we can trust talking to us um about it and you know one of the, another thing that you know that 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 makes me really angry is you know, when we are described as hard to reach you know it's not that we are hard to reach it's just that you know they are doing rubbish at reaching yeah. us effectively you know so we've really got to move away from putting the blame on 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 people of color in terms of you know how we are affected by the health inequalities that so often are fueled by racism yet yes i am saying the r word it is real it's something mm. that's blighting our lives so often yeah. And another area where we're seeing a lot is um, in, you know, when women are having children. I mean, the reality for women with HIV today is that if we are on effective treatment, it's almost impossible to pass the virus on to our children. And I think that's another, you know, really important development. But do you hear a lot about that in terms of women facing problems um, when they are having children yeah okay so now so you've we've kind of reached that discussion point that I always find really really hard Susan to get my head around around women and maternal childbirth and you've obviously introduced the additional complexity of women having children who are also HIV positive because that that killer statistic around black women are so much more likely to die at childbirth really gets me like it gets me like mm. why is it that black women are more likely to die at childbirth and I know that that used to be a figure that we associate with Bangladesh because Bangladesh has a very poor health system but to know that this figure exists in the UK where we have one of the most advanced health systems possible it just kills me so that tells you something about black women's positions in society and the way in which we get treated, the way we're supported in hospital. And is there enough support given to us to prevent that happening to us rather than what is it an individual black mother can do to protect herself? The, the question is always thrown back at us, isn't it? Like, what are you doing? Did you not take that vaccine? Did you not show up for treatment? Why are you so hard to reach? I'm hearing myself, I don't have a problem understanding culturally competent messages, but half of my family does have COVID. They don't need more patronizing culturally competent messages. 
What they need is access to timely, effective treatment at the right time. And they also need to feel as though that system has their back. That system has acknowledged, you know, that actually we haven't done a great job. We haven't had confidence in the way we've supported your communities. It shouldn't always be about hesitancy, reluctance, and us being hard to reach, right? It should be about what has the system done in order to support us better? And actually the system has been full of racism. Let's acknowledge it so we might actually be able to fix it. See, the racism word isn't so scary that we can't say it because actually once you start saying it, you can fix it. And back to your question around the chips on our shoulders, I would just say, Susan, yeah, I've got several, by the way, several, and it's okay. Can we now talk about how we get beyond me having a chip? I think, you know, any young black person in Britain needs to have several chips in order to get by the system that's racist. So let's not worry about that. Let's talk about how we fix the system to be more responsive towards our needs. Now, going back to that issue where black women living with HIV and, a, a, and in a maternity ward, I mean, that is where we, we really are at our most vulnerable, I would say. And if the healthcare professionals do not understand that vulnerability and how we need to be supported, I think we're letting our black mothers down and our black mothers who are already experiencing stigma and negativity around so-called permissive behavior that's landed them with HIV. Uh, that just needs to stop. And if it is happening, Susan, my heart goes out to every mother that's facing that because how much more vulnerable can you be when you're about to give birth and you know the statistics around our mortality when we're giving birth is what it is and on top of that we've got what medics making assumptions about how it is that we must prevent the transmission of hiv better and so on how much pressure can that mother take when she's about to give birth do you know what i mean we need to humanize that experience to say do you realize that you've just made me feel bad for something that has nothing to do with me at my most vulnerable point and knowing the statistics around uh, maternal mortality for black women. I mean, it's that level of understanding that I think health professionals need to kind of be trained on rather than us actually um, getting over our trust issues overnight, right? What about yeah. the anti-racism training on their side? Exactly. I, I agree with you completely. And uh, I had two children um, before I, I I was diagnosed with HIV. Both, uh, all, I've got four kids, all of them are HIV negative, And I had two children after my diagnosis. And my, my children before HIV, I, I, you know, I breastfed and, you know, everything was fine. But I was really conscious that when I had my children after my HIV diagnosis, I was advised, you know, that the safest thing would be to formula feed. And after I gave birth, I asked the nurse, I said, you know, can I have some formula for my baby now? And she actually tutted and said, oh, and did like a, a really big sigh and, and just shamed me because I was asking for formula when... It, yeah, I wanted formula to ensure that I couldn't transmit HIV onto my baby. And it, it's situations like that that are absolutely so heartbreaking. You know, I, I really wanted to say, it's like, actually, you know, I'm really good at breastfeeding. I, I breastfed two of my children. You know, it's a, it's like a, a badge of honour. Um, so that that's really hard. And I was just so desperate to get out of the hospital as soon as I 
possibly could. And it was situations like you know, when you go in, they, they took away my medication and I have to take my HIV medication at certain times of the day. And I said, you know, it's time for me to take my medication. And they said, oh, actually, no, now's not the time that we give medication. So, you know, th this was 16 years ago. So I'm hoping things are better. But, you know, it, it's horrible. And, it, you know, facing that level of sort of stigma and discrimination and ignorance when you're at your most vulnerable is absolutely awful. And, you know, it, it's, it's wonderful that, you know, now we know that if, if a mother is on treatment, it's almost impossible to pass on HIV to her baby. There, there are still kids um, who were born with HIV who are, you know, living in the UK. And what I think is really important to emphasise is that these young people are now thriving and going on to have children themselves, which is absolutely so heartwarming and so wonderful and I think it's so important that we move away from the idea about what does someone living with HIV look like and and sound like and often I get well like oh you don't seem like you're the sort of sort of person that would have HIV because of my accent or whatever and it's absolute nonsense you know we we really need to move away from the blame game and you know understand that you know anyone can have hiv it's not about you know who you are or you know what you do it's you know it's you can get hiv if you're having unprotected sex which i'm sure pretty much you know, most people have done at some point in their life and to also recognize that not everyone gets like HIV through sex as well. So yeah, it's, yeah. I, mean, I could just go on and on and on. <laughs> you, know, you just reminded me, Susan, when you said that they, the nurses, although it was 16 years ago, they were um, suggesting or judging the, 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 why you were asking for formula. I mean, what that reminded me of is a very old principle actually that should be relevant at any point in this century or last century which is a, what about a woman's right to choose like what what you are by by judging her choice and behavior you're 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 actually taking away her right to choose how she would like to do you know what i mean like i don't know something about I, women's rights fundamentally being insecure in that moment where you're most vulnerable and you shouldn't have to advocate for your rights you shouldn't have to do that she should confer that automatically in that situation and it just suggests to me that their capacities constantly need to be built and we were always educating them so tiring i agree but you know keeping on with the battle every day is a battle but we've we've got to you know, carry on with this but halima thank you so much for taking the time out of your very very busy day to to come and speak to us on this podcast it has been a pleasure susan and i'm just um i'm smiling because of all the stats that you read out to me i'm thinking god you know what it's what 2021 and look at where we started right so i i just think what a, what a fantastic role model you are susan phenomenal even when you were giving childbirth you were role modeling for that nurse <laughs> woman that you are and um yeah i just think that you know it, there are still some challenges ahead but i think 2021 has got to be about um dignity um values of respect and and actually also honoring i think the journey that you've 
taken as well. I have friends who are working hard on commemorating memories from the 1980s because I think there was a lot of collective trauma around um, communities impacted by HIV and, and, and all that trauma from their stigma. I, I think there's, there's a job there to kind of positively reaffirm that journey and that experience and, and let it not be forgotten. So thank you for being here and campaigning with the organization, with NAM AIDS MAP, because although we're in a much better place and it's not a death sentence, we can't forget the journey that you took and you are still campaigning in this space for others that might not be able to feel the power as much. <laughs> Wonderful, thank you. Thank you. What a rich discussion, just showing the way that health inequalities are interlinked. Thanks so much for listening. Please rate, review and subscribe via Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information on what Susan and Halima were discussing on the show, email info at nam.org.uk or follow us on Twitter at AIDSMAP.